Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz. Good morning, Stan. Good morning, Courtney, and thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, before we get to our special guest this morning, I wanted to give a real quick update on COVID. A few things have happened, but I wanted to give everybody a new statistic that I came upon yesterday on the web, which I think really sets the, sets the table a little bit differently. Now, we've all heard that about 166,000 Americans have died from COVID. And since the beginning of the epidemic, there's been about a little over 5 million people infected. But think of it in this context. This means that one out of every 65 Americans has contracted COVID-19 infection. This also means that since the beginning of the pandemic, COVID has killed one out of every 2,000 Americans. And it's continuing to. I think those are really remarkable statistics. You know, we're getting closer to a vaccine. Everybody heard the announcement from uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia that they actually have a vaccine that they're beginning to distribute, but they haven't done the so-called phase three studies. And those are the studies where thousands and thousands of people are vaccinated and we look for rare unexpected side effects. And we also get a chance to see how well it works, not how well it produces antibodies in your blood, but does it actually prevent you from getting the infection if you're exposed? The other thing that's been in the news is schools reopening. You know, right now we're running one of the biggest uncontrolled experiments that's ever taken place in this country. We've got 50 states, countless cities opening up schools, um, some of them uh, uh, with good compliance with CDC guidelines, some of them despite CDC guidelines, some with masks, some without masks. It's, it's a, a chaos out there. It's a crazy quilt of what we're doing. My only statement about that is I hope somebody gets it right and I hope very, very few people get it wrong. So during the broadcast today, we will field any other COVID questions you have, but I'd like to uh, introduce uh, Mr. Shane Wolverton, who we have the privilege of uh, having as our guest today. Shane and I have worked together now for I think a little bit over three years and he has one of the best abilities I've ever heard to articulate the case for quality. If if quality were sports, Shane would be the Bob Costas. I'll tell you, He's, he says it all clearly, not too many words, not too little words. Shane, tell us a little bit about yourself and what Quantros is and what you do. Well, first of all, thanks for the uh, kind words, Stan. So I, I've been in provider profiling for 30 years and uh, started uh, in 1991 and uh, went public with a company in 95 and then um, founded a, uh, an analytic company um, with some private financing. And so I've, I've been at it a long time, as you can tell by the uh, pervasively white beard. And, um, and the vast majority of that time, interestingly enough, was really working with providers as they wrestled with performance improvement and practice pattern variability. And about seven or eight years ago, began to work with more organizations that were uh, facing employers or plan sponsors or 
um, you know, organizations like the Zero Card, um, where quality becomes a relevant consideration when you think about value. So, you know, you guys work with publicly available data. You know, as I understand it, you don't get something other people can't get a hold of. So what is publicly available data? How do people access it? And where does it come from? Great question. So um, CMS is the largest purchaser of healthcare in the United States. And, um, and so you have Medicare beneficiaries, you have Medicaid beneficiaries that fall into the program, and then you have uh, managed Medicare, which is called Medicare Advantage. And so um, there are certain data sets that are available under certain research protocols that you can avail yourself to. And these are literally discharge records that give us the clinical and demographic attributes of a patient. So this includes inpatient care, outpatient, um, some ASCs, it includes skilled nursing, um, post-acute things like home health care. So think of it as kind of like just a raw data set that somebody, if they meet the right requirements, can, can pull that data down and then they can create um, what, what we call value-added analytics out of that. So does um, that there are other data, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, does that mean that, that Medicare sends you data that says, hey, this patient did really well, this patient did really badly, they had the right operation, wrong operation, or, or how, do you, how do you get that information out? So they don't, they just kind of send you kind of what I call like a dumb claim, right? Like this, a patient had an encounter and this is kind of what, you know, their condition was or their procedure was. So what, what we do and what other organizations do is you take that information and then you, you apply algorithms to it. So we risk adjust those patient records, measuring the probability of an outcome, like a mortality or a complication or a readmission. And, and as you can imagine, there are just, a number of ways that this can be done. Some can be very precise and robust. Others can be very rudimentary and imprecise. And largely, the public at large, meaning you know most consumers and most employers, um, have no idea how robust or how you know capable the methods are that are used to value add this kind of what we we'll call dumb claims data. So I'm an employer, and you know I've got a health plan, and. I've got three of my employees need a high-risk surgery. Let's say they need a heart bypass or a new heart valve. I mean, you know, my Blue Cross or my Aetna, I've got providers in the network. I mean, why wouldn't I think they're equally good? Well, I think, so if you go all the way back to the formation of PPOs, that was the premise, right? That a preferred provider organization gave assurance that you were getting the best price and that you were also getting good quality. And, and good quality was never really defined. It was, it was an ambiguous term. Um, if you think about the goal of a PPO being um, wide access, that kind of is antithetical to only selecting the highest quality providers. And so what, what I've been doing for 30 years is actually measuring the reliability of providers to avoid adverse events out of the data, source data that we get. And so the presumption of quality is actually a false premise. It's, it's, and so what we've learned is that there's a lot of variation in price, and, and I'm here to confirm that the variation in quality is of an equal magnitude and making it profoundly difficult for not just consumers, but also for physicians to make referrals and other stakeholders to really understand where I can get greater value. 
You know, I was talking with a doctor friend of mine in one of the Carolinas, and I asked her, we had a conversation about this, and I said, well, who's your best back surgeon? And she told me right away, he's the best we have in town. And then I looked his result up on Quantros, and he wasn't the best in town. And I learned from that that, you know, doctors don't make referrals necessarily based on quality. It may be other things like how nice the consultant is to patients, how smooth they are, how quickly they get reports back, how well they work together. So going back to the employer, going back to the employer, what, what things can an employer to do to kind of fine tune where their covered members sure. might go for these high risk procedures? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to recognize that uh, much of the information that you get is does not represent a precise measure of quality, if anything at all. So things like patient reported outcomes where somebody evaluates their encounter with a provider doesn't really speak to the technical quality of that provider to avoid a complication of care. And that there's information that's literally existed, Stan, for 30 years to make better decisions about where you would have a high-risk procedure. Um, and it's just now kind of becoming um, in the conscious of, uh, of purchasers. And so I would say the first thing is work with an organization um, like the Zero Card or others where quality is a central component of what they do. Because value, if you go back to what Michael Porter wrote years ago in his book, Redefining Healthcare, it's a very simple equation. And that is, what are we achieving for a dollar that we spend? Are we achieving an optimal outcome and are we paying a fair price? Those are things that can be known um, with a very straightforward investigation. It's not profoundly difficult uh, today to do that. So, you know, it, it, it was, when you and I first started talking, there were only some 28 or so procedures that were publicly reported that you had data on. And mm -hmm. w when we had one of our first conversations, um, I asked you, well, you know, the surgeon who did my blessed knee, ref knee replacement, you know, how do I know he's any good at doing something that's not publicly reported? Yeah, so I think the, so when you think about line of sight to quality, what we have to recognize is that, that there are kind of boundaries around what we can and cannot say. And so the, the, the question is, would I, can you impute the quality of a knee procedure to a spine procedure? And the answer is, no, you can't. They're, it's a different surgical type. It has a different predisposition to outcomes, an entirely different technical uh, approach. You, you would not be able to do that. But let's say you were looking at a knee procedure, whether it was inpatient or outpatient, and could you could you infer from that if I go to this physician based on inpatient data, um, you know, would he be a, a good provider for an outpatient setting? You could certainly do that. Um, one of the things that's happening too is um, under the accountable uh, care, affordable care rather um, uh, legislation, more data is has been released. Um, so um, we're now getting outpatient data where we actually are going to get line of sight to procedures that are, are only outpatient or will be soon moving to outpatient. And I don't know if you're aware, but SEMA Verma indicated that the inpatient only list is going to be kind of significantly changed where many more procedures are going to be available to be done in the outpatient setting um, at a lower cost, you know, hopefully at a lower cost to the plan sponsor and the member. So. We're, we are increasing or widening the aperture of what we can measure quality on. 
we will not be complete. That's kind of the, the, the truth. It is claims-based quality measurement. And if somebody has continued pain or discomfort or can't ambulate or have a quality of life that resembled what it was before, those are profoundly difficult things to measure with any rigor. So one of the things that, that uh, you and I talked about a while back, and I hear this all the time when I talk to hospitals, um, they'll say, yeah, that's, your data's old. I mean, it's three years, three years of data, and it's usually like a year back, and oh, we've done so many things to get better since then. H how do you answer that? Um, uh, well, so we're in a public forum, so I'd have to temper the way that I would ordinarily answer that. But, but I would say, I would make reference to what cows do after they eat. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I, I've been doing this for a long time, and I have heard, like, we're, we're different now. Well, the reality of this data is 10 months in arrears. Like, the most current, you know, kind of information that we have is 10 months in arrears. And what I would tell you is in working with providers, the, the information um, that they use many times um, is not capable of representing quality in the way that you could represent quality. So it lacks rigor, they misuse it. I will tell you that data science and healthcare is nascent. Um, it's, it's gaining, but, um, but performance improvement activities are profound, you know, kind of really profoundly stable over the last 30 years. They take kind of the same approach. So I would suggest to you that if I'm a provider that I, and I push back on data, which I understand why they would do that, it's very simple to unpack the attributes of the information. And what I find is that if you have a very straightforward, transparent conversation with a group of providers about how you are building the analytic, that they're, they're generally responsive if you can explain the underpinnings to them. Um, now, the, the challenge becomes, we tend to think about quality as an attribute of an institution. So, this hospital is a high quality institution, this hospital isn't, or this doctor is good or bad. What we don't think about is the reality is that the variation is, is far more profound. So you could have a hospital that is exemplary in joint replacement, but lags in cardiothoracic surgery, or they do a great job of managing heart failure, but not so good at, at COPD. So the variation is so profound and it's so intrinsic to healthcare that being a consumer or a, or a purchaser, an employer, and not having access to information or a partner to help you navigate makes it virtually impossible to find value. So when we look at the Quantra's results and we're looking at, you know, is this hospital a great hospital or not so great? Um, and you, you put up a score that goes from like one to, or just under one to 99. And how do you make those scores and what are they, are they percentiles? What do they represent? Sure. So, so think about, so if you had a, a, a class with a hundred students, you could rank those students in order of test scores and you would have a hundred observations of students and you would have, you could, you would create a, a bell shaped curve. So what a lot of people do to measure quality is they take disparate data and then kind of smash it together and then create weights on things that they may value more or less. Our approach is a little different in that what we do is we take um, the patient discharge record and we append probability values to each patient discharge record for every outcome that that patient was at risk for. So let's say they were at risk for 15 different outcomes. We then take the provider and create a risk-adjusted index. So that can be a physician or a hospital. And then we calculate the Z value. And, and what that does, which is different, is it re the observations 
based on statistical significance, not based on the index. Because the question that we're asking is, let's say, Stan, I'm, I'm deciding whether you or Courtney would perform my high-risk surgery. And, and let's say, Stan, that you had 100 discharges I could evaluate and Courtney has 1,000. The question that we're asking is, giving the line of sight that we have to these two physicians, which one of them might be more reliable? And so the percentile score literally tells you how reliable they are at avoiding all the adverse events. So let's say that Courtney is in the 95th percentile, and let's say, Stan, you're at the 50th percentile. So what, what that would tell me is that Courtney is more reliable than 94.9% of all the physicians that perform that procedure, and that you were more reliable than 50%, and then I could make a more informed decision. I may choose to go with you, Stan, because of your you know, humor and your demeanor and how friendly you are and how much you know about COVID, but at least I'm informed about the relative differences in the performance, and then I can determine what value means to me. So we got a little technical there with Z-scores and risk adjustment. But I, let, let, I, you know I'd have to go there. Yeah, I knew that. But let's just go <laughs> on to one thing. You said that this patient may have different outcomes than that patient. I mean, what do you mean by Betty is going to have a different outcome than Ralph? Well, so at, at the, at, at, in a fundamental sense, not many patients vary considerably. So when they have an encounter with a physician, if you're a brittle diabetic and you're morbidly obese and you have COPD and, um, and other underlying chronic conditions, it's more likely that you might have a complication or a readmission. And what we do is we account for that so that there's nobody that's disadvantaged in the comparison. So if you're treating a younger, healthier population, um, we would expect you to have less complications as compared to an older, more you know, complicated patient. And when you think about statistics, I'm sorry, I, I, I used the word Z-value. It simply is looking at reliability. It's a way that we can understand simply, and it's somewhat intuitive. If I said to you that I was 90, you know, I, I was in the top 10% of my class, we all kind of know what that means. And so we're expressing information as a simple number that a consumer could understand. And then you could take that and say, I'm gonna color code it, or I'm gonna create a symbol that makes it intuitive. There's a gentleman that is widely published about variation in, in healthcare, his name's Jack Winberg. I would, I would, I think go, go, you know, Google Jack Winberg. And, and he says one of the kind of, the, one of the profound problems that we have is that there's no information that can get to a consumer that can help them understand the variation in quality. And so what happens is we are in the midst of a healthcare crisis and we're directed by people that we trust. And I'm not saying that we ought to distrust them, but we assume that they're informed. And many times they're not. I, I know a few primary care physicians that could tell you the complication rates of the general surgeons that they are referring patients to. And yet they would represent them as, you know, a, a, a capable general surgeon. And, and that's the way that we're navigated in, in healthcare. We're, we're taught to believe that until proven otherwise, that the, that the quality that we would receive and the price that we would pay would be comparable across different providers. And frankly, that's just not the case. I got uh, two questions here. The first is, um, so let's say if I'm an employer or I'm a benefits advisor, because we've got some benefits advisors on the call today, and I am advising you know, how to get the best possible care. I mean, how, what are the mechanics 
how would an employer get your data and use that data to make decisions? How would you, how would you think that could be done optimally? So we, we actually do that with broker advisors and, and employers today. They, they can have direct access to the content um, and they can know by physician or by facility which of those organizations might be more reliable in, in avoiding adverse events. Um, uh, they might use the zero card um, to say, you know what, we want to work with somebody that can help us manage that capably. And we know that you guys work with Quantros and we know that you guys go out and can negotiate fair pricing. So we would, you know, we would use you. Um, interestingly enough, it's, it's not really about company size. There are, I, I work, I've, I've been in conversations recently with a, a small company that has, you know, around 500 employees. And, and it's not profoundly difficult to navigate if you have the information and you have the courage to do something about it. Um, so, so the information is there and it's digestible in a form that, that I think would be self-evident where you would want to go and where you would want to go. Yeah, I know what, what we see kind of looks like a dashboard, which is really easy to, to read. So another question is, you know, a huge amount of the care that the people listening on this call today buy are x-rays, advanced scans, uh, you know, ambulatory procedures, MRIs. Is there anything on the horizon to tell them who's a high value provider? Yes. So I, I, I failed to mention that as part of what we're doing in extending the risk models to include outpatient settings, we're also evaluating providers on um, the appropriateness of care. So you think about, so there are two things about that that I think are interesting. One is, do I have somebody that's doing diagnostics more frequently than you would expect given the, the type of condition or procedure? So we want to understand that and we want to score the providers towards those that are not doing things that are unnecessary or remarkably different from what would be an evidence-based guideline. And then the extension to that, which we'll be delivering next year, is, is really about the choice of modality. You know, as you know, like avoiding complications on an unnecessary surgery is not really good quality. If the surgery is not the best way to treat the patient, we want to avoid that altogether because you're putting the patient at risk unnecessarily which by definition is poor quality. So we'll be delivering appropriateness of care measures that helps to get at that because that is a huge driver of variability as well. And so that's going to be available, um, you know, very shortly by the end of this year and then into next year, we'll be um, uh, enhancing that. Wow. That is, that is really big. And, you know, I had a doctor friend of mine who was a back surgeon and, you know, I was discussing with him his Quantro scores. And, you know, there's another doctor that has a little bit higher score. And I said, you know, what do you think about that? And his question was that, oh, that other doctor operates on people that shouldn't be operated on. I mean, is you, are your data going to be able to answer that question? So the, the quality scoring will be distinct from the appropriateness of care scoring. So you would kind of use them distinctly. But, but I, if you go, if if I go all the way back to kind of 30 years, that those arguments or arguments or, or that logic is the logic that providers use to walk away from the information. Because the, the, the challenge is, it would, be, it, it would be like suggesting that I was not, let's say, a professional golfer. I enjoyed playing golf. 
And, you know, I have a decent handicap, but I certainly couldn't compete at a professional level. And, um, and what I find is that, that while providers ingest a lot of information, that when you really get down to it, there's a, they are uncomfortable, and I understand why, around information that kind of highlights the range of variability. The reality is the variation in physician level um, quality reliability at virtually any institution in the United States is profound. You could you find um, providers in the top decile down to the lowest decile. There is no hospital that delivers categorically consistent outcomes across every service. The variation is is just pervasive, and so um, I think those comparisons sometimes can be uncomfortable. I know the attitude of taking a multi-stakeholder approach helps a lot which is like, we don't want to beat you up, but we like, we want to have some truth and some fact-based discussions. And in those discussions, I always find that the providers are usually very willing to engage. Have you seen much relationship? Some of the data you get are comparative costs too. I mean, what's, what's your relationship, the relationship you see between reliability outcomes and costs? It's, there's no correlation whatsoever. So the, uh, the variation in practice patterns within a hospital, it continues to be significant. Uh, I mean, you're talking about um, even in things like orthopedic surgery, um, it's, it's tremendous. So it's thousands of dollars of variation in practice patterns. Um, and you have to remember that a physician is an independent agent Many of them are independent agents at a hospital, and the hospital is simply the setting in which they deliver the service. And so they have a lot of discretion about what they use and how they use it that's not necessarily dictated by the, the hospital to them. And so um, that variation in cost is, is pervasive. Now you have two things. You have cost to the hospital, so the cost that it, it is incurred to deliver the services, but then the cost to the plan sponsor of those services is driven by significant pricing variability on top of the practice pattern variability that we see. So by the time the member in the plan is, let's say, paying for the cost of that care, it, it's five to 10x and has no correlation to quality whatsoever. And so, um, and so I think what we've got to do um, is to get back to the economic simplicity of that cost means a fair price that's known, that's complete, and that quality is empirically derived and that you actually force the correlation to those two attributes that drive value through a program like what the Zero Card delivers or other programs where you're measuring those two things together. But there is no correlation. I'll tell you something else. There's no correlation in, in uh, volume either. So a lot of people tend to think that higher volume providers always deliver more reliable quality? And the answer is no, it's not a good proxy. Um, so the correlation has to be forced through measurement and, and knowledge. So the other day we were looking and uh, we noticed, you know, you can on the, on, on the site, we're able, to, we're able to look at hospitals and then see the doctors at the hospitals, but you're also able to look at doctors and look at their scores at different hospitals when they operate at one right. one. And there was one doctor that was like 99 point something at one hospital and down at 30 at another hospital. How do you explain that? Right. 
So it, um, as you recall, volume is an important aspect of measuring reliability. And so if you have a physician that practices 90% of the time at one institution and 10% at another, and let's say that represents you know 10% of the volume, if they were to have a single adverse event, we're comparing that combination of physician and hospital as, dis as discrete so that that single you know, adverse event at that hospital would impact his reliability with respect to his performance at the other institution. Um, and, and so uh, that's to be expected. So it could be the influence of the hospital. It could have just been that there was an adverse event over a low volume. But as a consumer, an employer, I would want to know the best hospital physician combination that gives me the greatest you know, probability of a, of a good outcome. So I've got a, a deeply personal question for you, Shane. So in your immediate family and friend circle, do they tend to rely on their brother-in-law's pharmacist recommendations for doctors, or do they call you whenever they have a question about needing surgery? <laughs> because I could imagine well, you get a lot of calls. You know, interestingly enough, I do get a lot of calls, and uh, I've got I've got two aging parents and two aging in-laws that are currently in the clutches of the providers right now and being directed like, you know, canoes down the rapids. And so I've done my best to intervene uh, as they get as they get pushed, you know, down the uh, down the raging river. But the, the answer is yes, because here, here's what happens. People that people that know that this information is available is is a very small group of people. It needs to be far larger. Um, and so I literally got a call last week from a, a friend of mine who's a, who's a physician. He's a general surgeon and I uh, hurt his back and, and was looking at spine surgery. And I was helping him navigate towards, um, you know, a spine surgeon that he could feel good about at an institution. And so I, I do get a lot of questions and I'm happy to help people because part of this is also the humanity of wanting people to understand that they can achieve better outcomes and get greater value. You know, for physicians that practice together in a group, there is a certain both social and economic incentive to refer within the group. Uh, what are your yeah. thoughts about that versus using data? Yeah, so I, I would say that, um, that, that referrals are not made in, a, in an agnostic manner. They're, they're not made based on empirical information. And there are certainly incentives to refer inside the practice or inside the enterprise if you're in a clinically integrated network or if you're, you know, owned, you know, by a, by a hospital system. Absolutely, that is a huge influence on how referrals get made. And, and so as a consumer, what I would recommend is, um, you know, do your homework. Even though referrals are made, um, that doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to redirect your care in a manner that you feel more comfortable with, that you should feel empowered to do that. We have a question coming in from Colorado here, and it's pretty similar to what I just asked you. Here's a question I've always had since I learned about Quantros. Is there concrete data out there about, since there's co concrete data about the quality and performance of providers, why do we still as a society rely on references from friends, family, and Facebook? And why is it Quantro's known throughout the land? You know, these ruts are years and years old. When you think about, so when you think about kind of the heritage of physicians and how important they were in our lives and in the community, they were the trusted advisors. 
for for years and i'm not suggesting that they not be trusted i'm simply suggesting that they don't have at their fingertips the information at the time that you have a need or a condition that can tell you which providers are the most reliable and i will tell you that this move towards transparency so you know we have pending legislation at the federal level about transparency of pricing um when you think about the the transparency of somebody evaluating the quality that you deliver as a physician, it goes profoundly against the grain of a training process that was more of a guild or a craftsman style of education and training where the physicians were taught to be autonomous, they were taught to be scientific, and they were taught to be independent. Um, and so you have an independent third party that provides this information. I would find it threatening, um, just kind of being uh, forthright with you if somebody was evaluating me in a way that I may not deeply understand it. And the other thing is, um, when I first started and I would present data to physicians, I would actually have a clinician with me, a physician that was more knowledgeable about information because the physicians would not receive the information if there wasn't a clinician. Now you move forward 30 years, you have now data science, you have machine learning and other tools that are at our disposal to measure performance. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really about how open the providers are to using and seeing information about performance and understanding the underpinnings so they know how to respond to it. So if I go to you know, Facebook or Yelp with which to make a decision about my provider, that information is not gonna be highly reliable. And I shouldn't be surprised if I get you know, something that may not be what I expected. That said, um, I will also say that I think a lot of purchasers, frankly, have lacked the courage to say we are only going to direct care towards high-value providers, which means that you don't get the choice that you feel like is the, is the broadest because we're actually helping avoid harm or helping avoid low-value care. Um, I think that goes kind of against the psyche of us as independent you know, consumers. We, we feel like we want to be able to make those choices, right. and frankly, we just don't have the information to do that. So Shane, we're just about out of time here. If somebody were interested, and I'm not gonna tell people to call you to find out where to get their hip surgery done, but if someone were interested in learning more about Quantros and what you do and what you had to offer to employers and advisors, uh, what's the right way to get in touch? So we have a, our website is Quantros.com and there's a, a purchaser tab or a purchaser broker tab. You can go there, do a form fill and, and we're happy to reach out to you um, I, I will tell you that um, that we that my affinity for the zero card and the work that's being done here is is really high because I feel like you guys make the understanding of the benefits so simple and straightforward that you're concerned about the quality, you're concerned about the price, and those are the things that really have to move. And so we we are a big fan of the way that you go about communicating this information to the purchaser and to the member, because this is about compassion and empathy and strengthening the ability of people to feel empowered, sometimes during a, a crisis that may be the most significant crisis in their lives. And, and so we feel really good about the relationship and, and where we're going, because we feel like that we're simplifying the way that you can get to higher value and also you're, you're mitigating the risk of making a decision unbeknownst to you that might be a poor decision. Yeah, and I would uh, comment that we also have some folks on the call today who are from various business coalitions around the country. 
And I could, I'm the medical director for the Well OK, the Northeastern Oklahoma Business Coalition on Health. And to the coalitions out there, Quantros and Shane have been remarkably effective and gratifying partners and strong recommendations for coalitions who have employer members to be talking to, to Quantros and Shane. Do we have any more questions, Courtney? We do. We have one question from Al. Uh, does Quantros have metrics for behavioral health admissions? That's a great question. So the answer is we don't um, right now. Behavioral health, as you, as you uh, are probably well aware, are, are driven not necessarily from the same things that drive other types of care. Um, we've been working on behavioral health, but I, I don't have anything that I would feel confident uh, would would be empowering in, in terms of making those decisions. And there are a couple of reasons for that. So one is many of the many of the places of treatment we just don't have line of sight to, um, frankly. And then secondly, um, the um, the clinical or the clinical or emotional or mental drivers of that are not really well understood in terms of predicting an outcome. And the outcomes that we measure would be different than what you would measure, let's say, for a surgical or a medical encounter. So there are a lot of factors. We continue to move down that continuum, but it's it's really heavy lifting right now. Great. That it? Well, thank you very much, Shade. You've been a great guest. And uh, again, I've got nothing but the strongest recommendations for Quantros. And uh, you've been a great partner to all the things I've worked in. So thanks very much. Courtney, you want to wrap up? Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, you both in the great conversation and collaboration today. We sincerely hope that having access to our experts in the field has been a valuable resource to you all. For more information, including a chat capability where questions are answered live, please visit thezerocard.com forward slash COVID-19. Let me repeat this, thezerocard.com forward slash COVID-19. On behalf of Dr. Stan Swartz, Chief Medical Officer, our special guest, Mr. Shane Wolverton, and myself, Courtney DeWitt, Sales Executive at The Zero Card, we thank you and we hope to see you again in two weeks at the same time and same place. Take care and stay healthy. Stay safe. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 degrees of healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out. <laughs>